Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is William L. Silber. He's written a fascinating book called The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War and Business. We're going to be discussing some fascinating examples from politics, war and business right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. What is the Hail Mary effect, Bill? So the Hail Mary effect uh, has to do with uh, a circumstance where there is big upside and very little downside. Like Aaron Rodgers in the last 10 seconds of the game, trailing by, you know, four points. Uh, he's on the 40-yard line. He can throw a bomb into the end zone, the Hail Mary pass. He wins the game. And if he misses, it's a meaningless interception. So that turns Aaron Rodgers into a risk taker. He wouldn't throw a Hail Mary pass in the middle of the game, but at the end, he be suddenly becomes, instead of disciplined, he becomes a risk taker. Well, that same uh, incentive occurs with anyone, a president, a general, or ordinary people in a circumstance where there is big upside and limited downside. Protection on the downside makes you reckless, makes you daring do, do something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. So it's it's in a scenario where he's, let's, let's use Aaron Rodgers as the example. He's essentially lost the game in the dying seconds of the game so he now has nothing to lose and he's got this potential for an upside if he can connect with the Hail Mary pass. So is that the sort of defining characteristic? Is it that you have essentially already lost or that you have nothing to lose? How would that otherwise manifest? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that he's already lost. He would lose if he does nothing. So he might as well take a big risk. But it doesn't have to be at the end of a game. There are other circumstances where, and I can give you an example, and I will give you an example of athletes who have downside protection, not at the end of the game, uh, but in the middle of the game. Imagine baseball, where uh, a, a hitter gets up, and the count is three balls and no strikes. So most of the time, they wait and say, you know, let me see if I can get ball four and I get on first base. On the other hand, the manager may say, you have the green light. What's the green light? The green light is, if you'd like to swing, you can. You have, ready, the option to swing. 
and really great players like Mike Trout, who was a three-time uh, most valuable player. Uh, he says, ah, oh, when I get the green light, I try to swing as hard as I can because I want to belt the ball out of the park. And the worst that can happen is I swing and miss. I have downside protection, a skewed outcome. Big upside, limited downside, encourages Mike Trout to take a risk by swinging hard. You're uh, a lecturer, professor uh, at NYU Stern School of Business, and you apply these principles uh, in your class in an intriguing way. How, how does that happen? Well, yeah, look, this class was a, an investments class, and I'm teaching students how to decide uh, you know, their portfolio, stocks, bonds, real estate, and the course can get pretty mathematical. So after a while, I figured they need a little bit of fun. So the last month of class, I wanted to teach them the power of downside protection. So I have a little contest. I give them a list of 10 assets. It could be the S&P 500. It could be today, Bitcoin. It could be and was crude oil and so on and so forth. And what I say to them is, if you pick the winner, what's the winner? The one that has the biggest profit over the next month of class, you will get one and a half points added to your final grade, which is a big deal. And if you lose, eh, nothing except you get our sympathy. So the question is, how should they choose? What should they do? Well, you know, people can guess prices could go up, but guessing, that's not a strategy. Is there a strategy that will help them win? And the answer turned out to be, pick the riskiest of all those assets which is not the ordinary way you pick an investment necessarily. In fact, you usually don't. So here, pick the riskiest investment. Why? The riskiest investment, back then it was crude oil. Today, it would be Bitcoin. Well, it could go up the most, in which case you'd win. It could also go down the most. That's the definition of risky, up the most, down the most. Who cares if it goes down? You don't lose points on, the on your grade when it goes down. Therefore, all you care about is the potential upside. And you want the one that has the biggest potential upside. Because otherwise, you won't win. So therefore, you choose back then. It was crude oil, which is very risky, very volatile. Today, you would choose Bitcoin. So that principle. and. I drove home that point a little more with a subsequent little push. What I said to them was, hold it, I'm going to let you enter a different contest. The different contest is you'll get five points added to your grade if you pick the winner. 
you will lose five points if you pick the worst. And guess what? Nobody wants to play. Nobody chooses to play that risky because they are risk averse. But when I put the downside protection, all of a sudden they become reckless. And you see this manifest in the real world as well. So you, you give the example of uh, investors who ordinarily would hold some cash, hold some stocks. Um, when they, and we've seen this sort of behavior more recently with the expansion of Robin Hood and a lot of new entrants into the market, perhaps because people were bored and locked at home with COVID last year, but there's been this explosion in the use of options in, in investing. And you say that the, the option, the call option payoff in particular has that characteristic that, that you're discussing. Perhaps you could just elaborate on that a little. Sure. That's my favorite example. And you certainly did your homework, Toby. All right. So what I say is that a call option is precisely a security which gives you big upside, the higher the stock price goes up, the more you make continuously, continues to go up. And if the stock price goes down, well, you do nothing and you lose what we call the option premium. It's called an option premium. It's really the price of the option. So the payoff to every call option is skewed. Big upside, limited downside. In fact, that's when you buy a call, when you are, ready, worried about downside protection. That's what a call gives you. And that's why calls on the riskiest stocks cost the most. Why is that? If they were free, I would choose, I give you a choice between 10 different call options. And they're all free. Which do you choose? Well, the one that has the biggest upside. I want the option on Bitcoin. I don't want the option on the S&P 500. It's too boring. So call options gives you big upside and limited downside. And that's precisely why mean stock players in recent months have bought out of the money call options because they have skewed upside potential and very limited downside. And it could be a game changer, a life changer, like winning the lottery. Do you think that uh, as a, a younger person, you're sort of, uh, you know, you have that ability to keep on earning through your life. So you have some uh, incentive to take these more lottery ticket type bets when you're young. And as you get older, you should, you know, this is, everybody will understand this. You sort of reduce your risk until you're not trading options anymore. Maybe not even holding stocks, you might be holding the majority of, um, might be holding mostly cash or bonds. Do you think that that's a, that's a sort of, uh, is that a sensible strategy if you're young enough and you can recover to sort of take these lottery yeah. ticket type bets? Yeah, you know, we've, we've been agreeing on almost everything, but not on this one. Uh, I, I just don't think it's 
a strategy. It's like asking, you could have asked me, well, I'm young enough. I might as well play the lottery with everything that I have. And I would say that's probably not a good strategy, no matter how old you are. If you want to accumulate wealth over your life, the first thing you got to do is work hard. Get up early in the morning and work hard. And then put away your money in a diversified portfolio. And we can talk about what that is and so on if you want. You hold it. And after 30 years, it will accumulate. Well, that's no fun. It really isn't. It's no fun. So if you want, you can buy some options. And the question is, how much money should you spend? And my answer is, what's your entertainment budget for the next month? Do you put away $100? to go out to a fancy dinner? Do you put away $500? Do you put away $1,000? However much money you have in your entertainment budget, that's how much you should spend on option premiums. There's a, there's a recently well-known phenomenon in finance. Why do people keep on buying growth stocks, even though for the most part, they tend to underperform value stocks tend to do better. And the reason seems to be that all of the really big winners come from that growth stock cohort that are already expensive. Is that is that another example of this phenomenon, people investing in the call option or the, the very expensive stocks for this sort of reason? And you, and you find that um, people who've been in the market for a little while, they recognize that the smarter place to be is perhaps selling option volatility. So they tend to be selling calls to these people who are buying the lottery ticket. Um, and that seems to be a more sure way of making money, although you do have that potentiality for a Nassim yeah. Taleb, black swan type event. Yeah. So there, you had a bunch of questions in there, and I don't know which one I'm going to tackle first. Let me tackle the one about selling options. Uh, I was a market. I traded options on the futures exchanges. I was on the uh, New York Mercantile Exchange and I traded crude oil options. Um, and uh, I, also, I also traded futures contracts. So I, I was actually on the floor of the exchanges when it was fun to be on the floor and you could make money. I mean, I, I don't know whether you ever saw Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. I've seen the movie. It's the best movie there. It's the best movie. And that's what I did. It was a lot of fun. The last thing you wanted to do was sell naked calls, naked meaning not protected, or sell coal out of the money calls. You keep on making money 90% of the time. Why? Options expire. Most of the time, options expire worthless. But the 10% of the time that they pay off, they will carry you out bankrupt. So I used to tell my class, if there's one thing you learn, actually two things you learn. First, downside protection. The second thing is never ever sell an option. You will make money most of the time, but you will not live to tell, the, to tell that story because you won't keep your... Now, do we hear stories 
about people making money selling options? Of course we do. And that's because of a phenomenon known as selection bias. We only hear the stories of the people who make money. We don't hear the stories of the people who went bankrupt slowly. People who went bankrupt a lot, like the guy, like like Wang and Archegos, the big losers we hear. But the slow losers, which is most people who do this kind of thing, and they just fall by the wayside. So come back around. I, I don't I don't think selling options is a good strategy unless you are well hedged because for every buyer of an option there's a seller somebody's selling but they are not selling naked options if they live to tell it so i guess just to bring this back to your book that suggests that the key is the downside protection well let me come back and say downside protection encourages people and i don't it could be the a president it could be a general it could be an ordinary person in life if you have downside protection you can take risk and it may pay off okay joe namath led the jets to their only super bowl in the you know the 1969 uh, the super bowl in january of 69 and he was what he he's had nothing to lose why is that he was 18 point underdogs so he had nothing to lose and he could take some risk okay and that was okay that's okay because he and the jets and unfortunate jet fans suffered but we have to be careful because sometimes often when there are big risks that people take because they are downside protection the costs are borne by others and that leads to reckless behavior causing ready collateral damage and that's something we really have to worry about when people who have downside protection and are encouraged by the circumstance to take big risks worry that others may bear the costs let's talk about one group uh, that definitely do have uh, some downside, and that's Asian eunuch spiders. What is the uh, strategy for an Asian eunuch spider? Yeah, that, you know, I got, yes. Uh, you read the book and you took the most important example. It was the <laughs> example that finally convinced me to write the book and also to name it The Power of Downside Protection. And this example stunned me. I was well, well aware that normal people, you and I and everybody else, take risks when they are confronted with downside protection. But this, in fact, also occurs in the animal kingdom more generally. 
the male spider of the orb web species, an Asian spider. I don't know the technical name. I'd have to look it up. It's not important. You can read it on page three of the book, whatever. So the male uh, uh, orb web spider, when he has sex with the female, his genital appendages break off and stay in the female. And then he guards the female to ensure his paternity. And of course, a team of scientists having nothing to do say, we're going to see how strong this guy is. So they conducted experiments with hundreds of these, what they call eunuch spiders. And they had believe it or not, stage battles. They put the eunuch spider in there and they put a regular spider in there and the eunuch spider never loses. He always beats up the fully endowed spider and their explanation is he has no reproductive future. Therefore, he can be aggressive because he has nothing to lose. So that's why the book is called The Power of Downside Protection in honor of the Asian orbweb spider. Uh, there are some interesting examples you've alluded to. Uh, you've alluded to them, but uh, George Washington crossing the Delaware. Um, how is that an example of this behavior? Yeah, that was another stunner. I, I was uh, really surprised and the question is, you know, how do you, you know, how did I find this example? And the answer is, I say, follow your nose. You read something and there's something in there that says, oh, you go there, you go there and you keep on going. And I followed until I discovered that George Washington crossing the Delaware was exactly the same as Aaron Rodgers throwing a Hail Mary. They certainly don't look the same, but they are. Because at that point in, seven, in the winter uh, of 1776, Washington was on the verge of collapse. He had lost, the British had been winning battles in New York, in White Plains, in Harlem Heights. And Washington's army slowly and slowly, they went back to their farms, they went back home. And he writes, he was, in, he, he was uh, about to attack in the Battle of Trenton. And he writes to his cousin in Mount Vernon, if we do not win this battle, ready? the game will be pretty well up. Well, I could imagine Aaron Rodgers saying the same thing in the huddle. If we don't connect on this pass, the game is over. That's what Washington said. He crossed the Delaware, rolled the dice. He rolled the dice because if he didn't win the Battle of Trenton, the Revolutionary War, as far as he was concerned, would have been over. It's a classic Hail Mary that turned out to have a very favorable consequence for the American Revolution. 
So that is true for George Washington as uh, a general, but you have this uh, Woodrow Wilson example where he was elected uh, in 1912 and again in 1916, and his, he ran the second time on this platform of remaining isolationist from World War One. But then when, when he was elected America and he led America into the war, so that was a political estimation on his behalf. What, what, was, the, uh, what was the thing that gave him that ability to do that? Well, let me just take a little step back because the Woodrow Wilson example, you know, I, there's, there are a number of political scientists who have written uh, anecdotally about second term presidents, which in the United States means they were lame ducks because the only exception is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You don't have a more than two terms. You are a lame duck. A lot of political scientists suggested there are stories about second term presidents being more reckless. Well, I'm sort of an economist where we like to do controlled experiments. Usually we can't because the world only runs once. Woodrow Wilson provided almost a controlled experiment. He was elected in 1912 by, when it went in by less than a uh, plurality. He only had a plurality, didn't have a, a, uh, a majority. He was elected in 1912, was reelected in 1916. And during both terms, the European war, World War I, which is sometimes referred to as the Great War, Today, we don't think the Great War was like World War II, but back then, the Great War was World War I, and um, he ran on a pacifist platform because most of the country wanted to have nothing to do with the European War, and he stayed out of World War I, the Great War, the entire time, despite great provocation. There was the sinking of the Lusitania, which was a British ship with more than 100 American passengers were killed. He stayed out. And in 1916, he ran on the platform, the slogan, he kept us out of war. It was emblazoned throughout the country. And he won. Within three months, a month after his inauguration, the inauguration back then was in March, in August, in April, April 6th or 7th, he signed the declaration of war against, uh, against Germany. Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons, but the obvious answer is he had downside protection. He would no longer face voters. He no longer had to worry about the electorate, and he followed my, perhaps his principles, but what he wanted to accomplish for what he considered world peace. Remember, he was a big, he wanted to, he had the League of Nations. So my conclusion from this is second term American presidents should come 
with a warning label. Easy to provoke because they have much less to lose. I wouldn't say nothing to lose, but much less to lose than someone who's going to be reelected or going to try to be reelected. You also say uh, Rosa Parks' refusal to get off a bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 is another example of this behavior. Yes. I, I mean, Rosa Parks is, you know, my hero. Uh, I mean, she stood up where, uh, at knowing that it would, you know, that this was quite dangerous. Um and I read her autobiography, which is a very small, thin uh, volume, but just something that you must read if you want to see a genuine hero. And she says very clearly that one of the reasons that she did not get up when asked to get uh, out of the seat in the white section was, she said, we had been treated miserably. And if we did nothing, it would never change. And therefore, I had nothing to lose by staying seated, which in fact, it was the was the single most important event in triggering the civil rights movement. In fact, the Montgomery bus boycott was when Martin Luther King finally emerged on the world, on the American scene. And it was because of Rosa Parks's courage. She said, I had nothing to lose because she felt a great obligation to her people and her grandfather taught her, don't let them take advantage of you. You must fight for what is right. And the way she fought was remaining seated. These are all examples where the, uh, the gamble has paid off, but you give some examples to where the gamble doesn't pay off. And one of them is the uh, Nazi Germany in World War II in the dying stages of it, um, the Battle of the Bulge. Can you discuss that uh, in now, this context? Th th this is probably the best example, although there are others. The, others, um, the best example of um, someone thinking they had nothing to lose and causing collateral damage. So um, uh, in December of, or the fall of 1944, after the Allied invasion of Normandy, the Americans and the British entered, came and went into Normandy and they were moving across France and they were on the, on the border of Germany uh, by October of 1944, and almost all of Hitler's generals said, now's the time to, you know, sue for peace because we might as well pick, we have no chance of winning. Uh, 
Unfortunately, um, Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's propagandist, used words that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, used his words against him. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we want unconditional surrender. Goebbels said, unconditional surrender means the end of Germany as you know it. We have nothing to lose by continuing to fight to the last child. And that encouraged Hitler to plan a counteroffensive. And I use an analogy, which I think is true. It's like a, a boxer who is just about to fall down and he has a desperate counterpunch, which is not going to do anything. Usually it's just a flailing. Well, in this case, Hitler planned the Battle of the Bulge, which was an attack to try to break through the American and the British lines. And almost everyone who had advised him said this was foolhardy. He would not listen. It turned out that the Battle of the Bulge, which we now know is very, very famous. It was a great, there was a great movie made about it. And one of the, there were two great consequences. It didn't change the war's outcome. Germany lost huge amounts of men, children, because they were young people at that time. And in that battle, because the Germans believed that they had nothing to lose, there was a huge massacre of American POWs, prisoners of war, outside the Belgian town of Malmedy. And this massacre where they were just machine gunned, prisoners of war who have rights, we know this, they were machine gunned. And there was a trial at the end of World War, uh, at the end of uh, World War II. And the people who testified said, well, we were told, take no prisoners because you have nothing to lose. So the collateral damage of the Battle of the Bulge, this reckless attack, was Germany's manpower and a huge atrocity visited on American troops. You say uh, Franklin, uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a similar uh, gamble with his attempt to pack yeah. the court. Uh, yeah. Could you discuss that one in this? Yeah, context? that's another great example of reckless decisions that uh, come back to bite you. So um, the New Deal was really a big deal. <laughs> and it was a new deal because it was unprecedented. And in 19, after, uh, during the Great Depression, and much of it skirted on whether it violated the Constitution. And the Supreme Court in, in 1933, 34, and, and 34 struck down a whole bunch of uh, FDR's New Deal components as being non uh, unconstitutional. 
So he had a meeting with his uh, cabinet in 1935, early in 1935, and in early 1935, while Roosevelt was still in his first term, and he had, by the way, been re-elected in 1932 with a huge uh, victory in the Electoral College, and uh, they actually decided, he was advised by a number of cabinet members, let's pack the Supreme Court. And all of his political advice said, no, 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 you can't do that. We have an election in 19, uh, at the end of uh, the year, and we are in a very close fight. If you pack the Supreme Court, they are going to make that a big deal in, your, in the campaign, and you may lose. So he shelved that. And then... In 1936, there was another election, and he was reelected with the bigger electoral college uh, uh, majority. And a month after he's reelected, or two, a month after he's reelected, what does he do? Proposes to pack the Supreme Court so that he can get his legislation, which is not quite. Uh, perfectly and not quite clear that it's going to win, get it through. Why is that? He had a big plurality. Congress was overwhelmingly Democratic. And instead of the Democrats in Congress supporting that, they viewed it as a major attempt by the executive branch of the government to push aside the legislative branch and Roosevelt's vice president, John Nance Garner, when the bill was introduced, gave it the thumb down sign. And Roosevelt was forced to backtrack. And packing the court was one of the big drawbacks of Roosevelt's tenure. And it is one which we've heard of and most recently with Biden considering packing the court. My advice is don't do it in your first term for sure. And in your second term, be careful because they're going to throw you out. You know, you may think you have nothing to lose then when your second term, be very careful. It may hurt your legacy. Uh, and speaking of another uh, of another president, Donald Trump's first campaign uh, also ha has these same uh, qualities. Well, again, you know, uh, Trump really believes very much so that you got to protect the downside. In fact, in his book, he wrote he's he's written a book. He says, "Protect the downside. The upside will take care of itself." And during his, the 2016 campaign, nobody expected Trump to win. We forget now because he has such great hold on, on, the, on the Republican Party, but nobody really expected him to win. So he could take what? Really outrageous positions, lock up Hillary Clinton. Who would say that? Nobody would say that. You may think that. Lock her up. Make the Mexicans pay for the wall. These are what? Outrageous 
comments that happened to hit home. He would not have done that had he been a politician all his life and was expected to win. He would have to be much more careful. And in fact, in 2020, when he was in fact given a very little chance of being reelected, one of his Republican advisors describes what happened during the 2020 campaign as the knives come out and this and that, and the president throws in incendiary Hail Marys and the downside protection when you have little to lose. You become reckless. Given that that's the case, uh, do you have any recommendations for, we have prisoners who have life without parole. They're in that scenario where they have nothing left to lose. What, yeah. how, how do you, what, what would you advise uh, authorities in that, in that instance? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not an authority on this. So I consulted the authorities and, Life without <clears throat> parole prisoners. Normally, the anecdotal evidence, the anecdotes tell you stories of prisoners who are life without parole prisoners who are extremely violent. The, the most famous one is Thomas Silverstein, who spent his entire <sighs> career in prison in, in solitary confinement. He killed five, three prisoners. He killed a guard by slashing them 45 times. And there are all sorts of stories about life without parole prisoners misbehaving. But there are a number of very objective studies of the of the behavioral characteristics of prisoners comparing life without parole prisoners with shorter term prisoners about how many infractions they have as well as the seriousness of the infractions. And it turns out the life without parole prisoners are less or certainly no more violent than their shorter term counterparts. And the question, of course, is why is that? Why are life without parole prisoners so much less um, uh, violent? Don't they have nothing to lose? The answer is, when you think about it, they are responding to incentives because they really have the most to lose by misbehaving. They will be incarcerated for the rest of their life and any infraction will be punished. They want privileges. They want air conditioned cells. They wanna be able to uh, 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 visit with their families whenever they like, they wanna become trustees. And in one prison, Louisiana, the Warden says, if you behave, you can 
in fact, join in a town fair and show off your rodeo skills. And believe it or not, <laughs> prisoners want to do that and keep themselves in line in order to not lose the privileges. If you give someone enough to lose that dominates the nothing to lose, they will in fact behave more honorably than most people think. A surprising outcome that I never would have said before I wrote the, before I read the material to write this book. Um, I'll, I'll leave this uh, as the last question um, because it's uh... Yvonne Gulgong, I'm Australian. This is uh, she's a she's a national hero. She's now Yvonne Gulgong Corley, but uh, she she faced off against Billie Jean King, uh, who was extremely dominant at the time. Do you want to tell that story? Sure. I mean, the, so at the end of this book, is there anything that you, as an individual, I, as an individual? can take away. Most of the stories involve collateral damage and you got to be careful, blah, blah, blah. Well, what about the individual? And there are times when individuals can in fact use the idea of nothing to lose to become successes. And there's a famous um, famous uh, song written by Chris, Chris Christopherson called Me and Billy McGee. I think that's the name. Me and Billy McGee. And one of the lines is freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Now that's a great line. And it gives you what? Nothing left loose gives you the freedom to take a chance. Ivan Gulagang is a perfect example of that. She was born to a poor Aborigine family and began to hit tennis balls against the garage in her house. Someone took her under the, his, his wing and turned her into one of, well, Australia's uh, pride when she beat Margaret Court Smith, her hero. And Margaret Court Smith said when she beat her, ah, well, you know, she performs better because she had nothing to lose. Well, that's really damning with faint praise, if I ever heard it. Uh, and Gulagong then went on to beat Billie Jean King in the semifinals at Wimbledon in 1971 when Ivan Gulagong wasn't even 20 years old. And uh, when she came off, she said, they asked her, you know, how did that happen? And she says, well, things went for me out there. Everything came off as I had nothing to lose. And after that, she beat Margaret Court 
Smith again in the Wimbledon finals. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. And I'm going to end to show that I'm not playing favorites with uh, Australians because I know who I'm dealing with here. Um, uh, Venus Williams was a five-time um, Wimbledon winner in the early, in the, uh, between 2000 and 2000. She won uh, Wimbledon five times, but then she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. She was forced to retire. And she came back in 2014, entered Wimbledon and made it to the third round. And what did she say? And they asked her, how did you win? She says, trying to conserve is not the right mentality. You've got to go out there and give it your all. That is a key if you want to succeed. You've got to play smart, she said. But then she added, I have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. If you work hard and play the game, as though you have nothing to lose, you too may turn out to be a winner. The, uh, the book is called The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War and Business by William L. Silber. I'm just holding up the case there. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for your time today. It was a fascinating discussion. I, I appreciate your very careful preparation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs>